DGFG is proud to present Grabbing the Mic with Nikki Judge and Friends, a podcast with a purpose where real and raw conversations are had about real world experiences happening in society on a daily basis. Real talk leading to a greater awareness and understanding in areas of social injustices and marginalized communities, entrepreneurship, gender equality, and empowerment, politics, science, adversity, finding promise, positivity, and inspiration, and so much more. So get comfortable and get ready for great talks and many moments of laughter with Nikki. All right, so grabbing the mic with Carrie and Nikki. You know, before we get into this, I noticed that when you put on Facebook, if you put, nothing will rile up the public more than putting what diet you are doing or if you put anything about gun control. Everybody has an opinion about this, and right now it seems to be a very hot-button subject. I feel like it's always a hot-button subject, but especially right now in the media and everything. Um, so today we have a very special guest, Carrie, who is our special guest. <laughs> our special guest is Mark Reichel, uh, who is an attorney, and I, I feel like that's such a um, very simple way of saying what you do. Can you tell us what you do? Sure. I'm, I'm a, an attorney in Sacramento, and I primarily do federal criminal defense, but I do a, a, a bit of everything, actually. I do a lot of consulting for certain businesses. I do some state criminal defense as well, and um, I do some general civil litigation as well. So I've been doing it for about a little over 30 years. I was with the federal public defender for almost 15 years originally, and at that time, I was a felony trial attorney. I did a lot of uh, terrorism defenses, actually, terrorism defense in the 90s and in the early 2000s, right after 9-11. I've argued in the U.S. Supreme Court on the history and the origins and the meaning of the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution, which is about search and seizure and the warrants and use of warrants by the police. And so I argued that in 2006. And since then, I've, I've lectured uh, around the West Coast um, to the National Lawyers Guild and the AC, AL, ACLU as well about knowing your rights and your, um, your rights in, in encounters with, with law enforcement and with federal grand juries as well. This is so crazy because we, we should really, we actually should have a separate podcast <laughs> about, um, you know, police brutality, police shootings, especially with our um, black brothers and sisters who have just been annihilated these last, uh, forever, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and that we actually did do a podcast about um, police brutality in a sense is in, in, in Black History Month, which mm -hmm. was really informative. Um, yeah. If you haven't listened to it, you should go back and listen to Loretta King, who was actually in law enforcement. She was also retired military, and she was a member of the Black Panthers Party for a few years. So she oh, was wow. a really fascinating guest to talk to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, Mark, I, I actually did some research because I am not ashamed to say that I didn't know a lot of the statistics um, around gun control and mass shootings um, and what an exactly what an epidemic it has been. Um, and some of the interesting things that I learned was, you know, we had one mass shooting in 1982, we had one in 2000, and we had 12 in 2018. Do you uh, know from all of your experiences and stuff, you know, what that's about? I mean, I know that's such a big, huge question, but can you can you link it to anything? To the increase in mass shootings? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, it's definitely the uh, accessibility of firearms. I mean, there's no dispute about it. I mean, Americans, I think we have about 4% of the four percent of the population in, in the world. And I believe we have, I believe we have 48% of the guns or something like that. And those numbers weren't there, um, you know, 40 years ago. So believe it or not, we have become more armed to the teeth. And it's the availability of uh, these of firearms everywhere you look and, and stockpiling and so forth. And it, it's, you know, the look, the business of America is business. And in a you know capitalist country like this, any industry, the goal is to increase, you know, their sales. Uh, the Internet took off. Other things have taken off in the last 40 years. And one of those things has actually been firearm sales, firearm production and then firearm ownership. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that, and I'll tell you a personal story is when the, um, when COVID happened and um, we all, you know, all of a sudden I started hearing people were starting to arm themselves, right? And so I, I turned to Nikki and I'm like, um, should we arm ourselves? Like, are we going to need to defend our home? You know, I'm looking on the internet for a, for bats and <laughs> different things. Like, what what could we do if we were in a scary situation? Um, and I'm sure it just that minimal level of um, of concern, alarm, a lot of people like went crazy. And I know that gun sales surged in June specifically with COVID and then with um, the, the all the protests that were happening, um, especially with, you know, George Floyd and, and these horrible shootings and murders that were happening. Yeah, I, I don't doubt that as soon as... Um... As soon as there was any uh, disturbance in the streets in any fashion whatsoever, the, the first thing that goes up is gun sales. And, you know, those that are in the gun industry aren't shy about um, promoting it and so forth and making sure they believe that uh, they need a gun and that they can get a gun. So It was crazy, too, to see for the first time, um, you know, now we're seeing the lines outside of the ammo stores. And it's crazy how many it's it all is like. The line is out the door, 20 people deep, and it's all white men. Like, I have never seen yet, and I've looked to try to see, but it seems to be that it's like a predominantly white male. Like, those are that's who's searching for these guns during these times, or maybe ammo or whatever, stockpiling on, on the ammo. Like, I, you know, it made me wonder why it's always white men right now. Yeah, well, that's America. I mean, there's there's no dispute that um, that's certainly a segment that lines up to the gun stores and wants to buy guns right away. Um, it, it, I think it's kind of a reaffirmation of what they think is America is about. It's a reaffirmation of their, you know, their, I think them empowering themselves to say, look, you know, I've still got this, you know, big government can't take this from me. And it gives them an identity, so to speak, I, I believe. And it kind of reaffirms their to them their their power, and it's like an empowering thing for them to go buy more guns during a state of unrest. Well, I'll have you know that we empowered ourselves by getting two very hot pink tasers. So don't don't try to come for us because <laughs> we will knock you out with a taser and a can of hairspray and a lighter. So yeah. absolutely. And don't, don't, don't forget our pepper spray. Oh, yeah, we got pepper spray, too. Yeah. yeah. Hairspray yeah. doesn't kill people. People kill people. <laughs> That's right. That's, That's right. right. Yeah. That's yeah, right. well, it's, no, you I... know, it's a uniquely American phenomenon, guns. I mean, there's it, the, the question is, is, you know, whether we can solve the gun control issue, so to speak, and the, the mass shootings and the, the killings of Americans by 
by other Americans um, with firearms. And, you know, whether that can ever be solved is the big question. I, I believe that it can be uh, something we can fix, but it needs to obviously be a national debate, national understanding. Um, there has to be a real conversation. And um, because otherwise this is just going to, you know, look, since the every time there's a mass shooting, nothing changes except that the mass shootings become more and more frequent and often even at larger extent. So, and there never seems to be gun control, which, um, and there just doesn't seem to be that. Yeah, you know, one thing that I get a lot of heat for when I make this statement, so I just want to know what your feeling is about this statement, but often, oftentimes I will say, like, I don't care that people need or want to have guns, that's fine, but, like, who really needs an AK-47? Like, 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 why can't you have your revolvers and your this? Why do you need to have an AK-47? And everybody fires right. back at me that it's their right, but, like... What, what do you think that is about that people feel like normal everyday citizens who probably have guns to protect their home need a high power, many, many round type of type of gun that is usually military, right? Yeah. You know, it, like I said, it's, it's uniquely American. I mean, it, that's the big, big uh, debate and conversation that needs to happen without the inflamed passions. Um, it's about. Well, there's 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 all these factors that go into it. There's discussion about originalism in the Second Amendment and the Constitution versus the Constitution being a living, breathing document that adjusts and changes as problems, you know, on the horizon evolve and get closer and closer. Um, and and there's a large number of Americans who they may not know a lot about how they're governed, but they certainly believe they certainly believe that at the time of the adoption of the Constitution that the framers intended everybody to be able to have access to guns. And it seems to be the, the American, I would say, not education, but the American awareness of what the Second Amendment means is really pervasive, if you ask me. Uh, there's people who couldn't, you know, tell you what the Third Amendment is and couldn't tell you when the Constitution was adopted, couldn't put a decade on the Civil War, um, possibly put, couldn't put a decade on the Second World War. But they can tell you what the Second Amendment means, and that's pervasive across the nation, which is kind of interesting. So you're not going to be, I don't think you're going to be able to fool these people by telling them in some manner that it doesn't mean what it says. Um, there has to be a bigger discussion about whether or not, you know, we buy into complete originalism or whether we're willing to amend the Constitution. And um, you just, I don't think it's not an easy sell to people that are gun rights advocates any kind of change is not an easy sell, and it needs to be understood that that this is not something just by edict that would happen. Um, and I, and you know, that's how I view it. Mark, you mentioned the framers, and you, we we sure. had a previous discussion about that, and I thought it was so sure. interesting how you worded it. And so, could you give me your sure. opinion, your thoughts on what you think? What you first of all, what you think the original framers meant by the Second Amendment? Where sure. did that come from? And what is the issue? Like, what what were they trying to trying to get out of it? Well, I in in January two thousand and six, I was to argue before the U.S. Supreme Court about a really unique issue about whether or not one of the things was whether or not when the officers knock on your door, do they have to show you a copy of the warrant? Do they have to give you a copy or show you a copy? Because it doesn't say that in the Fourth Amendment. And you know, we all we all know, you know, show me the warrant. You want to come in, you know, show me the warrant. We all say it, but. The question is, if it's not in the Constitution, if it's not in the text of the Fourth Amendment, 
um, you know, is it required under the Fourth Amendment? So I had a four month leeway before I had to argue and I did not want to. I was, you know, obviously in awe of the opportunity to argue before the U.S. Supreme Court on the history of the Fourth Amendment and whether they have to show you a warrant. So I, I took a very deep dive um, into the American constitutional history and I read everything I could about, you know, common law and so forth, and the British common law and common law of other countries as well. And then the, during the colonial times, before um, before we were um, declared our independence, when we were still just a colony of Great Britain, I looked at all the state colonies and their laws and so forth, the charters for each one. And then I also looked at the time of the adoption of the Constitution, the adoption of the Bill of Rights, and all each state, state legislature, what their, um, what their, what their, particular charters and legislators and legislatures and constitutions wrote about various things. And I, and I didn't want to just know what they meant by the fourth amendment and, and what the spirit was behind it. So I got into this and I was fascinated and I wanted to learn what the first amendment meant as well as the second amendment, as well as the fourth amendment. And I did learn something that was, you know, at the time of the constitutional convention in 1788, they fought, they locked themselves in. It was in the summer. There were fist fights. There was threats of death. They argued about all sorts of things. And they, they like I said, they argued about everything. Um, you know, how old you had to be to be a president, representation in the states, you know, slave-owning states, you know, their votes and so forth. But one thing they all really universally agreed on was that they wanted a very small and limited federal government, a really limited federal government. And um, they did not want something too big. And all factions inside would agree on one thing. They wanted a very small federal government, but it had to be bigger than the Articles of Confederation. But that scared the heck out of people because they had just had a very long war uh, that was very emotional as well about, you know, cutting ties with Great Britain was a big deal. And um, so they had really determined that they never wanted this big federal government, big government, to dictate things them, to them again. And um, that they also anticipated, absolutely anticipated, the possibility of having to overthrow their, overthrow their own government at some point. Because they really felt that the nature of government um, at the time, the way they looked at it in Europe and so forth, that it, 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 it would just keep getting bigger and bigger. So every now and then it needed to be cut down. So the Second Amendment was one of these things in the Bill of Rights that was given to all the citizens in all the states for them to ratify the Constitution, they had to give this Bill of Rights out there to say, look, we also have these amendments to the Constitution, and these really are for individual rights. The Bill of Rights, you know, are all about rights of the citizens versus the state. And I was convinced at the end, and I, you know, you need to understand, I'm a very hard, passionate, liberal Democrat who believes in big government. I'm a, you know, I'm a John Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy Democrat, um, you know, so I believe in social engineering. I'm absolutely yeah. a social architect. I, I, I'm a believer that big government works. But I will tell you, when I was done, I thought, wow, what they meant in the Second Amendment, they really meant it at the time. The original intent, I believe, was very clear that you could have whatever weapon the government could have, you could have because you were the government. And mm. there's just, in my opinion, there's, you know, there's no dispute that's what they meant. Of course, they wouldn't have you know, foresaw the society we have today. And so... My views on that come after year, you know, a long time of studying and a rather in-depth studying, and it really opened my eyes. But there's a lot of people, I think, that have those same views but haven't done the study and I've done just because that's the, that's the America they want to believe in. That's the America 
that they want, and they think it's uniquely American across all of the world that we have this freedom and power over our own government. And so they kind of ascribe to what I just explained. I did it by studying, and I think they just do it. They believe in it because that's what they want it to be. Right. But, but having said all of that, having said all of that, that's the original argument about the Second Amendment. And it's just not fair because we, we have changed the first, the fourth, all of the other major amendments, the Fifth Amendment, the Eighth Amendment, the Fourteenth Amendment, obviously. And, and we really do exist in America on the belief that it's a living, breathing document. And it's the spirit and, it's the spirit and the parameters of the document and how we adjust it to each age. Um, and, and trying to hold true to its core, you know, intentions behind each amendment but we do we really have come to the point for many years now where we don't just really do original intent or we wouldn't get anywhere because that was you know 250 years ago so that was my experience so i mean justice uh, john paul stevens i think it was two years ago who sat very distinguished he was a republican appointee uh by richard nixon who thereafter became considered a very you know progressive kind of voice on the court and jurist. He wrote in the New York Times, I think two years ago, exactly what I'm saying is that, look, the only, the only honest thing we can do is to amend the Second Amendment. So to change the Second Amendment, it would require, you know, two thirds of all the legislatures in all the states in America. So mm -hmm. all of the states would have to get together and two thirds of them would have to agree to make an amendment to the Second Amendment. But, you know, Justice Stevens is saying, wrote to the New York Times, what I'm saying. And it gave me right. great validation. It was like, yeah, I agree. It, it, they wrote it to mean what it says. And um, either we amend it or we acknowledge in a national debate and discussion, excuse me, not debate, but a real discussion that, look, we don't just do original intent anymore. Okay. Right. Because right. for God's sakes, the constitution said, you know, slaves are, you know, three fifths of a person. Right. Right. So, I mean, we don't abide by the original intent anyway. Right, sure. So I always feel like the Constitution is a lot like the Bible, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Where you hear well, people you... just kind of pick and choose which pieces they're going to be super passionate about or ignore. Yeah, um, well, I, and... it was it was fascinating. I mean, they were going to try to draft a document that had never been done before that was really supposed to last for the ages. And I mean, society even in seven, the 1780s was still changing. I mean, you still had monarchies everywhere. You know, um, you know, you had Napoleon just beginning to, you know, start, excuse me, you had the French Revolution just beginning in France. I mean, you had monarchies, you had some parliaments that, it, you know, you had the English Civil War. So it was really, you know, democracies, democracies and constitutional democracies were really a, you know, rare bird. And they worked really hard, did a great job. And at some point at the end, they were just like, look, let's just get it out there and get be done with it. We spent a hell of a long time here doing this let's just get it out there and we can tinker with it later and that's what it was and that's what it really is right right do you think that um so as it stands now you know again doing my own research because i i really was not i thought i knew a lot but i really didn't um sure. you know it does it make so i've noticed and i i, I was today years old when i realized that each county could actually change you know create their own gun laws and change different restrictions well they can um, to a certain extent but the second okay. you know the second amendment applies to every state obviously so it's, sure. you know, it's your constitutional right um the supreme court tries to not get involved in gun rights very much 
they haven't, you know, struck down too many gun gun uh, gun laws. However, you know, a, a city or a county can't um, do so much as restrict your gun rights so that you can't possess a firearm in your house. Right, right. But on the other on the other end of the spectrum, which I believe you're asking or talking about, is that you know there is no universal federal gun rules, sure. and you would think there would be gun laws that there are. Don't get me wrong, there are federal gun laws that are universal, but mm-hmm. there are so many holes, and there are so many areas that are not regulated. So throughout the nation, the federal rule is a felon cannot possess a firearm. Okay, but there are other areas that are not regulated, as you're talking about with the, with the federal government. You know, private party sales. Uh, there's no federal background check for par- private party sales. Right. Um, that depends and, by each state. California requires it, but <laughs> you know other states. Most states don't. The, people think there's a wait. There's a federal you know background um, uh, waiting list. You know, and in some states, if you can, if your state can prove that they do just as good a job with an immediate background check, then the five day waiting period is waived. Mm-hmm. Okay. So politically. There are shootings, and usually the you know obviously the Democratic Party comes up with things to restrict gun ownership, gun sales, high capacity guns, and the big hot button ticket is what they call an assault rifle. It's it's right. hard to really define an assault rifle, but no matter what the um, you know there's just never enough votes to do anything meaningful um, because the Republicans usually have half of the Congress, either the Senate or the House. And they're not going to allow much of anything. And I mean much of anything. They, That party seems to have grabbed um, the Second Amendment as one of their, you know, the, the pinnacles of their of their platform. Right. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And that's one of the things that I hear all the time. Like, I'll hear people say all the time, I will never be a Democrat because I, one reason, because I love my guns. And Democrats, all they want to do is take away my guns. And it's it, it's almost like the Republicans have used that as a fear tactic that right. if you're like, don't be a Democrat, because then you're going to lose your guns. And, right. it, and and then you so many people buy into that, like even with the whole Trump thing, they're like, oh, God, I hate him. But I love the right to have my guns. And if it's a Democrat who's in there, then I lose that right. It's like there's this huge fear and they don't care about, you know, anybody else's rights or what's happening to anybody else. As long as they get to keep their guns, then they vote for the guy that they think will allow them to right. keep their guns. But but that's in reality, that seems to be the, I mean, that that I, that's absolutely what they say, but it's not the truth. It's the farthest thing from the truth that a Democratic administration, you know, in, in Congress as well, is going to take guns. First of all, it's very clear the Supreme Court has ruled, in, in the case of Heller in 2008, that you really do have a fundamental constitutional right to, to possess and own firearms, subject to certain exemptions, like, exceptions, excuse me, like for felons and so forth. But, um, you know, the Democrats have never gone around and collected anybody's guns. And what they have done is banned certain things that are considered as, you know, basically for assaulting humans, for assaulting human humans, high-capacity magazines, um, semi-automatic, semi-automatics, automatics, and uh, anything that's really not, you know, necessarily, but is just for military style. Now, that seems to be the only thing the Democrats have ever been involved in. Um, anyway, and that's, that's where it's at. And, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I was looking at it. I, I saw that, you know, California, uh, you know, it's illegal to possess an AK 47. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Uh, but the guy that, um, was the shooter at the Gilroy garlic festival, which was horrific. Uh, they're all horrific. 
this one's a little closer uh-huh. to home because it's not too far from us, um, was actually from, got it in Nevada, just brought it right on over and, and committed his, you know, several, several murders. So it's yeah. crazy to think how easy it is, even if, even if you're in a state where, you know, California has some of the strictest gun laws, um, where you can just hop on over and, and do your dirty deeds. As, um, yeah, there's a, there's an absolute pipeline that comes from Nevada. To, everybody that wants to get an illegal gun, a gun that's not lawful in California, you just go to Nevada and, right. you know, you figure a way to get it. And it's very, very common. I get a lot of those cases, actually. The California Department of Justice works pretty hard to investigate those, by the way. Yeah, right. Uh, but, I mean, even then, like, they're kind of up against it, right? I mean, some, some innocent-seeming person driving across, you know. And I'll tell you, when I come from you know, Reno back to Sacramento, I, I rarely have to stop, <laughs> you know, right. at those check stations where I think they are asking about fruit and stuff. I don't know. Um, but it doesn't seem like it's really, well, they're not going to, they're serious. not going to randomly start checking in there. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So that brings us to the next thing. And, and one of the things is like, is there a simple, I guess nothing is simple in this topic. But, you know, it does astound me, you know, when we, Nikki and I were in Tahoe, I remember the vividly when um, we were in Tahoe having a great weekend, we turned on the news in our hotel room and it's, you know, everything was about the Orlando shooting. Um, and it just astounded us how many rounds of ammunition this guy had um, and how he was able to kill so many people so quickly. Um, and, you know, what are your... So, so what are your thoughts on that? I mean, what, are, what types of regulations are there for the amount and type of ammo a person can, can have and, and should have? Yeah, well, the states vary on that. The, there, was a, there was a ban, uh, as everyone talks about. There was, a, there was a federal assault weapons ban passed, you know, under Bill Clinton's leadership. And when the Democrats had the House and the Senate in 1994 under Bill Clinton's leadership and Bill Clinton's administration. And then it had a, ten, it was a 10 year experiment to see how well it worked. And it had a 10 year, you know, lid on it and it had to be renewed after 10 years. Otherwise it just faded away. Well, you know, by year nine, it had clearly worked very, very well. And, but by 2004, um, unfortunately, well, by 2004, George Bush was the president. Um, mm, mm-hmm, he, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and you know, we were at war with, we were, you know, we were at war after nine 11 with two different countries, Iraq and Afghanistan, and it died. And there was not really a lot of support, uh, from the Republican party in any way, uh, about, um, re reissuing the assault weapons ban. So it did pass and it did pass away and, you know, it died, so to speak. And, uh, you know, there is a lot of statistics about, you know, how many more mass shootings there have been since then. Uh, you know, Joe Biden right now is very public with his desire to reinstitute that exact bill. Mm-hmm. And um, that, you know, that's it. So there is no federal, you know, there is no federal uh, limit on the amount of ammunition that they give the states the rights to do that. So there is right. no comprehensive, um, there is no comprehensive, extensive federal regulation of weapons and ammunition that would, I think, satisfy a social scientist who were to believe that that would be effective. 
because yeah. every, you know, everything always has a loophole you can get around. So, you know, that's why you have the, you know, the, the gun shows, the gun show exemptions are the classic example where, where a federal firearms licensee, somebody licensed by the ATF, a federal, they're called FFLs, as you know, but an FFL has to do a background check to anybody they sell to. Mm-hmm. However, their private firearms, they don't have to sell. So as long as they've had the gun for over a year in their private capacity, they can sell that to someone without a background check or registration. Jeez. Yeah, so that's... Jeez. That's yeah, gross. So, yeah. so let me ask you a, a hypothetical, because this is another debate that I've had with people, or argument on Facebook, I guess. So in reference to the pulse shooting, so that guy walked in and he had two um, high-capacity, quick-load weapons, the my thought was if people don't have if you still keep your guns but you don't have access to these high capacity uh guns or they're shooting off a lot of rounds do you think in your opinion that if he just had a normal gun that somebody could get to him the shooter and take him out before he's able to reload and take out more people yeah i don't think that's an uncommon thought um, it's kind of a, not a superhero, but it's an action hero thought. And I'm not so sure, you know, I'm not saying it wouldn't happen a lot, but you know, anybody who's creative can say, well, you know, the person can then arm themselves with six handguns and that's, you know, 36 shots if it's a six shooter. So, um, you know, they say, you know, or they could, you know, load quickly. And so, yeah, I mean, a high capacity mag, that's certainly, you know, it makes it a lot easier for them to shoot, shoot, shoot. And, um, you know, I, somebody with us, you know, with less ammunition is a lot easier to run up and tackle, obviously. But, um, you know, I don't know any of the scientific literature or professional literature on the subject, which has any, has, you know, can aid in any way or lend, lend some real, you know, clearness, clear clarity to that. Sure. I was looking and I, you know, you talked about the, um, the statistics as far as, you know, how many mass shootings in these years and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, you know, it, I, so I, I looked it up because I need to know <laughs> that I'm, I have to arm myself with knowledge. Um, but so I was just interesting things that I came up with was that there was one, so mass shootings defined as, uh, a killing of four or more people. By right. firearm, um, and so I saw that there was one in 1982, one in 2000, right? So that was right before 9/11, and then in 2018 there was 12. I mean, it was a huge jump. Um, and so, do you? Why do you think, in your opinion, it's been it's progressively gotten so much more common? I mean, I, you know, I know that's a trigger. It's a very loaded question. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I again, I would, I, I believe it is the abundance of the firearms. Um, are people crazier now? Or, you know, I don't know. I think there's more, obviously there's more, there's more people. Population is bigger. But, you know, is the incidence of mental health and violence bigger? I, I don't, as a, as a percentage of the population, I don't know. Um, obviously, we don't treat our mental health um, we don't treat mental health like we should. Um, we, sure. you know, disregard it and we, we treat it so, so poorly, but I think it really is just the overall abundance of guns. I mean, the, the amount of guns, the availability of guns, availability. everywhere you look, yeah. 
I mean, I, I think that's what Michael Moore was probably getting at in Bowling for Columbine. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, is that I don't, you know, I mean, I saw it a couple of times, but that was, of course, like 20 years ago or more. <laughs> right. No, it was. I think it was 20. It was a I long remember. time ago. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually, yeah, I was actually in a federal trial involving uh, gun ownership by someone who wasn't supposed to have them. And I went and saw Bowling for Columbine. It was, and I saw the federal prosecutor who was prosecuting the case was at the movie with me, too. So it was kind of funny. Oh, that's uh, funny. <laughs> in the middle of trial during a weekend. But, you know, it just seems that America is a really violent, violent country. And um, I just, you know, you know, it's just, it, you know, look, I just think culturally it has gotten that way. The wild, wild west. And you then feed it with more people everywhere you look. Um, I think we kind of glorify violence and as a culture. We don't have a national discussion about it, that's for sure. I mean, like you said, it, you know, you can't even bring it up because it's a trigger. We don't have an actual national discussion at all. We just have people running to you know, their respective corners saying, you ain't taking my gun from me. And the other side saying, you know, nothing will ever change and all these people will have to die. So there's a, there's a lack of a real discussion, I believe. And I think that, you know, the gun industry is going to keep churning these things out. And, you know, the problem is, is they still work. So, you know, some industries will make something. My, it's my understanding that's what Land Rover does. The Land Rover vehicle, no disregard of the Land Rover vehicle. But my understanding is it's not made to last more than 10 years because then the, you know, the, the factory would be obsolete at some point if it lasted forever. So the Land Rover is supposed to be great for several the first couple of years and after that you know hey you got to buy a new one well that's not the story with guns so you know the guns that were made in 1980 are still being fired today and if you keep making more of these things it's just a pile that gets higher and higher and so that's my thought is that you know guns don't go bad very easy and uh, they're all over the place one of the my, one of the most interesting parts of the bowling for Columbine to me was that you know when they got to the whole Canada part and they had talked about how in Canada they have more guns per capita than anybody else, okay. and they have the lowest amount of crime, and they leave their doors open and they leave all that stuff. So I, I think you hit on a good point that as Americans it's just kind of it's kind of who we are and like it's we almost romanticize you know the whole having guns and. It, it, like like it makes us stronger. It's like and like like you said, just being it in well, the, odds and the politicians in the Senate and the Congress who say, you know, out of my cold dead hands, it is a rallying cry, and it, I think it is it is fundamental in a way to uh, what people think it is to be American is 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 this freedom and the individual freedoms which include this right to a firearm that they believe exists and. I think there's there's just no dispute that when you talk gun control, there's a segment of the population that hears you saying socialism. Right, absolutely. And it's like, no, it's not what I said. Um, you know, so, I mean, you know, I call it cafeteria constitutionalists. And that's a lot of people that believe in the Second Amendment, you know, it, you know they're, they're zealots for the Second Amendment. But they can't stand protesters because, well, that's the First Amendment they don't really care about. They don't care for the media. Well, that's the First Amendment. You know, they don't really care about that amendment so much. And then, you know, there'll be Second Amendment complete. They'll be real, you know, extreme on the Second Amendment on their view of how important it is and fundamental. And then, then if you talk about torture or something, 
doesn't that violate the Eighth Amendment, cruel and unusual punishment? No, I don't think so. So, right. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I don't really care it, about that one. Yeah. yeah, it may be kind of a capitalist thing that it's their way of empowerment. Like, you know, I, I don't know. It just seems to be that it's like their way of still being the haves that, you know, you could take, every, you know, I can still struggle to make my bills, whatever, but I got a gun. So I'm a have versus the have nots. I think it's a it's a it's a feeling of I, I just think to so many Americans it's a reaffirmation of uniqueness. Like, you know, this isn't, you know, this isn't Poland. This isn't, um, you know, Greece. This isn't, you know, Zimbabwe or something. I can possess my, I can own a firearm. I can own, you know, several firearms and a big gun, you know, a big right. rifle. So it, right. it, you know, I just think it's ingrained here. And without a discussion that, you know, that there has to be reason, you know, reasonable, there has to be a reasonable amount of anything. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, that it can't be just, there's no rules. Yeah. Uh, you know, my, uh, on a personal note, my dad is a retired sheriff. And he, okay. uh, we were, <laughs> actually a funny story, we were at the Burlington Coat Factory, right? Just <laughs> minding our business. Dad came in to visit. And we all just went there looking around. And he leans over one of the clothing racks into me and he quietly whispers, just so you know, I'm carrying. And I'm like, what? And he's like, I have my sidearm. I'm like, why? We're out Christmas shopping. Why did you feel it necessary? I just carry. I just always, I just always have it with me. Okay, dad. You know, my dad just turned 70 or he's going to be turning 70. Um... A 72, sorry, 72. And he, um, it's just, it is almost like, um, uh, my dad's a responsible gun owner in that uh -huh. he doesn't have an AK-47. He doesn't go out and, you know, brandish his weapon. He knows how to use a weapon. And he's actually prides himself on, you know, our the boys in our family taking them to the gun range and showing them gun safety. And, you know, if you take the allure off of it, and when I grew up, he was always, you know, he would be cleaning his gun at the kitchen table and he would explain things to us. So we weren't, it wasn't a mystical creature that we weren't, that, that we were intrigued by because it was just a part of dad's you know his his uniform really you know and we knew that you don't touch it you could kill someone yeah but um i went and now my brother is into building guns of his own uh does he use them maybe once in a while at a at a, at a drive you know at a shooting range um but what i hear when i go back home for thanksgiving and stuff is my dad and my brother talking about the guns that they built and it's like this manly thing. It's almost like, um, a, it's almost like they're into carpentry. Hey, did you see this dresser I just built or whatever? You know, it's like this manly macho kind of pastime that they have. So I, you know, I, I wonder if there's a, a lure to to of that. You know, to especially men, that it makes them feel more manly, more macho to own guns. You know, I don't have any like, dispute with that. I mean, I think that's exactly. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I mean, honestly, uh, that is, um, specifically with white males, obviously, um, right. it's a big deal. Uh, I mean, it's, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It, and then it, it, it would be, um, good. Like it would be, I wonder what the statistics are. Cause you hear a lot of people who say, well, I have a gun so that I can prevent crime, but I wonder like really how many gun owners have actually prevented a crime in their life. I mean, it seems most of them just go out 
and take their little guns and they go and they just shoot on a range, which I don't find appealing. That seems kind of boring, but it seems to do something for them. But they all say, well, I have them to prevent crime. But it's just like you don't ever hear about or very rarely do you ever hear about somebody being like, oh, and then there was this bystander who was actually armed who prevented the guy who came who was armed. Do you know what I mean? It seems to be that seems to be more of a, yeah. a rare story well, that you hear. It is rare. And I don't, you know, obviously have any literature, professional literature on it, but I do follow it in the news a lot. And so when I do hear about, you know, the 90 year old homeowner with his wife there and they're asleep and the guys break in and you know, pull a knife on him or whatever. And the, the dad, the guy pulls out a gun and or the wife or whoever and, and shoots him in the home. I mean, most of us root at that point for the, the sure. people with the guns. Sure. And, and I do hear that every now and then. And I do think there is, I really do believe there is value in that. Um, there's kind of a normative and a deterrent effect. If, I think, I think there is a deterrent effect that if people knew that a homeowner had a gun, I think they're less likely to try to burglarize. So and I that's think if, why all those signs in like Rio Linda, they say this house has guns or whatever. <laughs> well, I think in Rio Linda, that's probably true. I don't think there's many homes that don't have a gun. I mean, I'm being honest. I have personal knowledge of that. But I mean, I, you know, look, I, I think that gun ownership should never be and never would be in America outlawed. There should be reasonable regulation about certain things. But, you know, I, I do think you see every now and then the story of, you know, somebody using the gun in the right way. Because at times there is, you know, sad, it is sad. You know, I never celebrate violence or the, the death or even the, the harm to anyone at all. But, I mean, there are times where you hear about a good person with a gun and, you know, stopping a bad person, so to speak. And, and, I, and I mean, I think that does happen. And I think it does argue for, you know, the possession of guns, firearms, responsible possession of firearms. But, um, you know, still, that doesn't that does outweigh, in my opinion the multitude of times that the firearm is used improperly, you know, and, and, you know, we hear about the mass shootings, but as a criminal defense attorney who does state court cases as well, I mean, you just literally see the number of assaults that clog the courts with people shooting over nothing. You know, they're drinking and they, the neighbor next door says, you know, keep it down over there. And the guy says, no. And then before you know it, somebody's shooting somebody and it's not self-defense. It was, you know, anger. And so offensively, so... Do you think that um, gun control, do you think gun control is an effective way to, to control crime? Well, gun crime, yeah, I do think gun control would be an effective way. There's, I mean, well, there's there's all sorts of, you know, there's all sorts that goes into the, to in my opinion, if you want to have a recipe to fix crime and to fix societal problems, gun control is definitely one of them. It's obviously not the only thing. And by itself, I don't think... Gun control by itself, I don't think is going to fix all the crime that you'd like to fix. I definitely think it would reduce crime um, in in many ways. But, you know, there should be other things, so many other things as well. Yeah. And I think the question really comes with whether or not we want to fix it or not. And it seems to be um, it's something we're afraid of dealing with. And we just walk away from it every four years or so and say, eh. You know, maybe the next generation. Maybe will the next guy. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe the yeah. next generation, because it's at some point, you know, there has to be a discussion about it, and and it, it, it if we if we think it's something we can't fix, we're wrong, you know, because we're better than that. We and, are. We are. Yeah, better we're, than we're better that. than yeah. that, and we can have a discussion that can resolve some of these things. But 
I have I have some faith in Gen Z, and I know that um, <laughs> uh, only in that 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 there's more and more uh, people who speak up about you know they're just uh, disgust for the way things are going. You know, in yeah. you know 2020, you know um, 45,535 people were killed, you know, through homicides using a gun, but in um, 2019. There was nineteen thousand, so it it jumped, it it doubled, more than doubled. Um, it's twenty five percent more, I guess, um, than the year before. So it's just insane how rapidly it's um it's changing, and how it just seems to be more and more prevalent. Wow, yeah. that's very interesting. I didn't know about that. Yeah, it's crazy. It's just crazy. It's madness. So I have a question. Just a hypothetical question. I mean, in our podcast, we try to think about what are the issues and what can we do personally. And it's hard to do things personally with such a big topic, um, such as gun control. Um, but, you know, do you think that it makes sense to introduce some sort of um, education in high schools, you know, about guns? Um, not necessarily teaching kids how to fire a gun. But teaching kids about um, this is what the issue is. These are the these are the issues, and these are the ways that maybe you can be better in your generation. And when you bring I, your own kids up, my view. This is the first time I've heard this, and it's just like a beautifully clear statement. I think you're exactly what I was saying was it's something we don't want to face. We're afraid to deal with it. We're afraid to have a discussion about it, an actual discussion. And you're you're right. Um, in, in, in the school classroom, we'll talk about everything by the time of high school and by your senior year. They'll talk about a lot of things and, you know, you leave. But I don't think they would ever, at least I don't think they currently ever address uh, gun control, gun issues, gun violence. You know, the future of guns, guns in America, the future of America in regard to gun regulation and so forth. It is something that I bet you every school right now, if you were to ask any school administrator or any teacher, they would say, no way. I'm not wading mm -hmm. into that. I'm not going to have parents coming down here screaming at me. And um, and I think it's interesting because we don't have the, the discussion that you've identified, in my opinion, which, you know, look, if I was ever elected king, that's probably the first thing I would do. <laughs> it's one of the first things I would do is require even just by ninth grade that it's mandatory that you really have a very, very deep understanding of all the facts, the science, and the practicalities of guns, gun violence, um, the realities of gun violence, what really does happen, how many there are, and, you know, gun control in, in countries that have gun control, how they don't have these mass deaths, what the mass mass shootings are like. Um, you know, it's interesting. We can, you've identified a great, great, great thing if you ask me. I mean, we have drills. I'm sh we have drills in high school on how to hide under your desk or go in the closet for an active shooter. But we don't have any discussion about gun control or the dangerousness of unregulated, the unregulated gun industry in America and America's history of guns. But we have active shooter drills. Amazing. That's exactly what I was going to say is that it's, it's crazy that parents are okay. Like you said, parents are okay with teaching our kids how to how to hide from a mass shooter and how to how to handle that situation if it comes up. But on the flip side, a lot of parents wouldn't be okay with their kids being taught by the school system yeah. about, about gun edu education and all the other stuff that goes into that, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I have to sign a permission slip for my son to learn about sex education, which is fine. Uh, but I would love, I, I would just think it'd be, I mean, just a small, and not even small, actually, if you were able to start teaching our children, this is the path our country is going down or has been going down. And this is what you can do, you know, because you never know which student is sitting in your classroom who could potentially affect change, you know, in the future. And right. And if that oh, impacts, yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I think it was a fascinating idea because I do advocate for certain things to be taught in school. And I never thought about um, the subject of gun control, gun regulation. You know, um, I don't think anybody in America is calling for the... Um, you know, taking away every gun that there is. I can't imagine. No, of course not. You know. yeah. yeah, no. I can't imagine. First of all, it would never make it. But there's a difference between outlawing all guns and making America a safer place. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned, that's great. I, I think that's a great discussion in high, high school. Well, maybe we can talk about it again soon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think what David Hogue and all the Parkland survivors did was just amazing. In fact, I think they're part of the reason that the Democrats won the presidency and, and, you know, the house and took back the Senate really is in my opinion was, um, was the youth that were upset with, um, a hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, they, it was so great to see cause you know, I'm a big Democrat. So when I saw them organizing and speaking out and saying they're registered and they're voting and they're going to go to districts and, you know, get, get, youth vote involved because of um to you know start start the process of gun regulation uh i, I think they're i mean i think the youth are primarily responsible for the end of of trumpism in 2020 as far as you know the white house absolutely yeah absolutely and i don't think our youth really know um or at least i don't think they do know the power that they actually have, you know, and that they can actually really affect change by speaking up. And, and it's, uh, it's so powerful to hear a young person speak with clarity and with um, depth and emotion about their experience. And like, we're in charge, right? The grownups are in yeah. charge. And how dare you allow this kind of thing to happen? You, you got yeah. be better, just be better. Yeah, I think with the Parkland Survivor, you know, students did and david hogue and the whole i can't think of the name of any organization they have but um look they showed that look at 18 years old they could handle very complex issues successfully and they did and um you know so yeah uh, can that age group handle everything else the environment you know education you know everything yeah my answer is absolutely it's a resounding yes yes i mean i you know i believe absolutely that um they could get us out of this mess yeah the, it's it's funny because it's that you know that age group people are the hardest on but they're also the ones who i know during trump's presidency they had had the most like the 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 two biggest ideas and one of them was i think it, it was on twitter or twitter but, uh Twitter. Was it Twitter on Twitter or something like that? They had something where Trump was having a rally and the kids in that age group. They decided to go on his website and basically reserve the seats. So then. Oh, Trump yeah, was, yeah. 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 And then they, it turns out that it was all like a big hoax and they just wanted like. So then Trump goes on and he's like, oh, I'm having millions of people to come here. And the kids like overthrew the whole thing just to make it look like he was going to have a lot to sell out the seats. But then actually nobody was actually really there. 
And yeah. then the whole and then the whole Apple thing, they figured out that with Trump's Trump had a what is that? An app on on Apple. Well, it was the younger demographic who figured out that if you go on and you give Trump his his app the low enough ratings, then his app goes away because Apple has a, a thing that if you don't have a high enough rating, then your app gets canceled. <laughs> so all of these youth all went on and were just rating the app like one star so that it would get kicked off of the 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 Apple. Yeah. I mean, that's how they think because they use the knowledge that they have and it's a lot of social media and it's a lot of, and that's what they did. I mean, they just took to social media and they know this stuff way better than we do. Um, But that's how you affect change, right? Is you come up with, you think outside the box. Okay, well, what can I do? I'm only 16 or I'm only 17. I'm going to, okay, here's what I'm going to do. You know, I'm going to stick it to them this way. This is my way to fight back. And I think the more people that think outside the box, uh, like creating a gun control classes or, you know, aware, gun awareness or whatever in high schools and places where um, people are really open to new ideas. Um, that's, that's where we can really make some changes, you know. So I'm not giving up. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to lose hope that yeah. we can get to a better place. Well, Mark, I think that's going to wrap us up. I cannot even tell you how um, enlightening our conversation has been. Ah. I'm taking away a lot of stuff. I really am. Okay. <clears throat> Makes me want to contact my son's high school and <laughs> make a sign. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it is the place to start. But, boy, it's it's a nation that doesn't want to have this conversation. Well, it has to be had, right? And we got to continue to talk about it, and it's not going to go away. So. Yeah. Uh, Mark, thank you so much for being with us. I really hope you'll come back again. I'm sure we'll have lots of questions and some other ideas that we might want to slide past your desk. So I would love have to. A, okay. All right. Thanks, thank you Mark. very have much. A great one. All right. We'll talk soon. Thanks again. Thanks. Bye-bye. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Grabbing the Mic with Nikki Judge on Friends and her co-host this week, Carrie Judge. If you'd like to learn more about the guest for this week, Mark Reichel, you can do so by clicking on the links in the episode bio, or you can follow him on his website at www.reichellaw.com or on Twitter at Reichel Law. If you would also like to donate to Mark's charity of choice, you can do so at the National Lawyers Guild. You can show Nikki your love and support by going ahead and following, liking, and subscribing on the podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. You don't want to miss the spring sale going on for the Grab in the Mic merch, so go ahead and click on the links below for that, or go ahead and follow along at dgfgllc.com to go ahead and grab some of that merch. Next week, Nikki has a surprise announcement for you all that you don't want to miss, so go ahead and tune in next week. Until then, have a great week. Thanks for listening to Grabbing the Mic with Nikki Judge and Friends. Tune in weekly for new episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Visit us at dgfgllc.com for new updates. Sign up for the Grabbing the Mic newsletter and links for the podcast merchandise.